it's finally here, man. I can't believe it, but holiday season is upon us, but that usually means for a lot of us, some additional stress. You've got the stress of travel, of work, of weather, but then there's the financial stress. And there's an old saying in the South, there's no stress like money stress. And if that's got your family stressed out, man, go to savewithbruce.com. Don't put Christmas on a credit card. Find out how easy it is to get rid of all that credit card debt, get a lower monthly payment and skip your next two house payments. That's right. No payments in December or January. You're done until February 1st and come February. How much money will you be saving every month? 500, 600, 700, 800. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this. But if you need some extra Christmas cash and you've got some credit card debt, or you just like a cheaper monthly payment on your mortgage, we can get you the cash you need and make life fast and easy. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket. So what are you waiting for? Go to savewithbruce.com right now. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce Pritchard. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. I ain't scared of shit. I ain't scared of shit. Fuck him. You, Bruce. It's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. And Bruce, as we record this right now, we are halfway through our tour across the pond. We've already knocked out a couple of shows, three in fact. Uh, tell everybody where we've been and where we're going next. Can you believe it? We we started out in Glasgow, Scotland, and right from there went to Belfast. Okay, I didn't say Belfast because I was learned the correct way to say it is actually Belfast. I was right. You were wrong. No, I was correct. And you know. And then tonight we did our first ever Fight in. Forever show, and we're in. Birmingham. See, Birmingham. Birmingham. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We weren't in Birmingham, Alabama. (laughs) We're in Birmingham, England, here in the United Kingdom. And I was excited to be here, man. I've never been to uh, England before, and I've certainly never been to Scotland. And I had a blast in Glasgow, one of our hottest crowds we've ever had. Glasgow. Uh, There you go. You said Glasgow. Oh, there you go. Glasgow. I'm a hillbilly at heart, but you know what? I'm having fun. And if you haven't already, there's still tickets on sale for you to check out the rest of this tour, especially if you're over in... Tell them where well, we're going we're, tonight we're going to be in London. Those of you, hopefully, if you're listening to us on the way to the show, we're going to be in London tomorrow night, Saturday, December 8th, Bristol, and the ninth, the last day of the tour, Liverpool. I can hardly wait to get to Liverpool, the home of the Beatles, man, where it all began. And uh, what a great show it was tonight with Fight Forever. The live wrestling event was great. And Co- Cody Rhodes, man. Oh, not, am I not allowed to say his last name? No, no. He's Cody Rhodes. I he mean, is Cody. You know, I mean, he's Cody Rhodes to me. He'll always be Cody Rhodes in our heart. And he's, I think he's Cody Rhodes on his driver's license. He's just marketing himself as Cody because he's at that level now. He's like Madonna. He's like Cher. He doesn't need two names. But a guy who did need two names tonight, but he left with some new hardware, Mr. 
Flip Gordon became the Fight Forever champion. So check this out if you haven't already. You can not only see Bruce and I, but you get a great wrestling show. And they've got a cool after-party thing where if you get VIP, you can come meet Papa Shango before the show. But then after the show... Man, Godfather's here. Yeah, I saw the Godfather uh, later on in the night, and I told him because I, uh, you and I walked over with Papa Shango, and we asked him if he had seen Papa Shango, and you actually get both Papa Shango and the Godfather, and uh, come check us out in our UK tour, and also if you're in Colorado Springs, man, January 19th. We're going to be there live the 27th in Phoenix, Day of the Royal Rumble, and VIP tickets are sold out already in Phoenix, but there's still a few great seats available. And our once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to come to Connecticut with Eric Bischoff. It's going to be a super show, something to wrestle with 83 weeks, all in Connecticut. It's going to be part of a huge wrestling convention. I believe they've lined up the largest NWO reunion ever and you can find all the ticket info for all these shows over at brucepritchard.com. But I do feel like, before we jump into this week's topic, which is a pay-per-view that I feel like doesn't get talked about enough, In Your House Degeneration Act from December of 1997, we should circle back and talk about last week because we got well, some can I give one last shameless plug to Australia because the response has been great. I'm going uh, there by myself. I'm going to be lonely. You know, I want to. I'm glad you mentioned that because I feel like I'm getting a lot of heat for not going to Australia. I'm going to pull a dentist stamp. I'm not booked. Well, hey, here's the deal: if you want uh, Bruce and myself to come to Australia, then you've got to come to this one right now. Support this show, yes, and then we'll make a we'll make a hot tag and we'll make a big return. But I hear tickets are flying off the shelves before we even announced the tickets officially. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tickets were sold. So if you've been sleeping on this, don't miss it. It could be your only chance to see Bruce Pritchard in Australia. Now, if these shows sell out, uh, I'm coming back next year. Come on. So let's sell these out because I want Conrad on that 17-hour flight with me. Wait a minute. 17 hours? Yes. Hey, guys, listen, go if you want to. Or, you know, it's not a big deal. I don't no, it'll like be kangaroos. worth it. It'll be no, worth I'd it. I'd love to. It's a beautiful country. I'm jealous. I'm a little half-hot at you. But tell everybody about the dates, the cities, the tickets. March 22nd, I'm going to be in Sydney, Australia. The 23rd in Melbourne and the 24th in Brisbane, Australia. I am extremely psyched and looking forward to getting down under. And for my friends in Houston, Texas, K Fitterman Sports, it is going to be Baybrook Mall. Eric Bischoff and I are going to be there on Saturday, January the 5th, uh, signing autographs and meeting all the fine folks. And that should be a blast as well because... Eric and I will be together, and we always have fun when we're together. So, what what do you want? To, what do you want to jump on me about from last week? What did I do now? Well, here's the deal. I don't necessarily want to jump on you, but I just want to tell you that I got some mixed reactions to Christian. First of all, some people said oh, it's not fair that the Edge show was longer than the Christian show. Dude, we talked about Edge and Christian on the Edge show because we wanted to cover a lot of their tag team stuff. We already covered a ton of that stuff in the Edge show, so I just didn't rehash a lot of that. The other thing I want to mention is we got a lot of heat saying that they thought we buried Christian, you specifically, which I thought was incredible because I couldn't even count the number of times you said he was the best peer worker. And we even got some folks who wanted to, I don't know, argue about how tall Christian is, which <laughs> might be the silliest thing we've ever discussed here. Well, maybe not the silliest, but uh, it was weird because I felt like we got some hate, but then 
you ran into somebody at the airport and got a totally different review. What a beautiful thing when I was at the airport on Sunday night, headed overseas, and I'm walking right through security, and the very first person I run into is none other than Jay Riso, a.k.a. Christian, who told me that he had listened to the show and that he enjoyed it. And I laughed at him and I, I looked at him. And I said, hey, man, how tall are you? And he says, oh, I don't know. Um, six one, six foot. Okay, maybe I'm six foot, <laughs> you know, around there. So I took a picture and I'm six foot even, maybe on the, the shorter side. But I took a picture with Christian. I put it out on Twitter so everyone could see Christian and I are pretty much the same same size, same height. And I know there were a lot of pictures floating around out there on Twitter of Edge and Christian together in this one photo where they appeared to be the same height. Christian's about six foot. I stated he was 5'10". That's what I thought he was. I, you know what, folks? Sometimes even me, even I make mistakes. I know that's hard to believe. So what you're saying is all the Twitter hate was accurate and that Christian's taller than you thought. Well, the Twitter hate was more directed at that he's that he was as tall as Edge and some of that. But okay, if the Twitter heat's mad at me for saying he is five ten, he's closer to five ten than he is six four. Okay, but the point is, you said he was five ten, and he's probably at least six foot. I mean, this is no, he's silly. Not six, one. He's six foot. I said six foot. Okay, I said Don't get six foot. But you even a minute ago said I'm six foot or on the shorter side. Yeah. What is that? There's no shorter side of six foot. Either you're six a five, foot or you're five not. eleven and a half. That's that's five eleven and a half. That's not six foot. It depends on what shoes I'm wearing. Listen, here's what's funny. Everything in the history of wrestling has been gimmicked heights and weights, and now we're trying to have a serious conversation about something that I don't know. But that's what we do here. We we enjoy well, this. Uh, and again, to clear up the hate. Uh, one of my favorite people, and, and Jay even laughed at that. Uh, Christian laughed at that on the hate thing. He goes, what? He goes, I, I thought it was very kind. And again, to be clear, Christian's one of my favorite people in the whole world. And Dixie's. And Dixie's. <laughs> and But he's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. One of the absolute greatest pure workers ever to step foot in any wrestling ring and let's mention this too a funny motherfucker if you haven't already check yes. out the edge and christian show on the wwe network every episode is more hilarious than the last uh they're hitting a home run go out of your way to see the moonies segment this past week uh bruce i know you haven't seen it yet but you're gonna laugh out loud and hopefully we entertain you today when we cover in your house degeneration x let's get in our way back machine here bruce uh december 7th 1997 and springfield massachusetts that's where this one went down did you say massachusetts no for the lot well see i figured you would because you're from the south i'm from the south and for most of my life you i thought it was massachusetts to massachusetts as massachusetts well no i didn't say that i'm not a hillbilly like you are anyway let's move on uh i do want to mention that um this thing did a 0.4 buy rate so not a huge buy uh only a 1.51 million dollar company gross and one of the things that i've always been fascinated with is these in your houses and how they got their names because this is before you drop the in your house subtitle uh, you know for years and years it was in your house you know 
good friends, better enemies. In your house, mind games. In your house, bad blood. And then eventually they just moved away from that, and they named every show sort of their own thing. Um, a lot of stuff changed, of course. Originally, it was going to be a shorter concept. It would be less money. And then somebody said, hey, if they're going to pay $15, they'll probably pay 20 And if they're going to pay 20 they'll probably pay 30 and we're already here. You've already got all this production cost. Why not just give them the extra hour? It's more profit for us, less overhead, economies of scale, yada, yada, yada. But the name, In Your House Degeneration X, when would you guys have settled on the name for that? The reason I ask is because, of course, DX really got hot uh, late in the summer. And they sort of ran roughshod there for a few months with China, Rick Rude. Sean Michaels and Hunter Hearst Helmsley, you know, going back to the beginning of the year, um, you know, had started to become a thing, but I'm curious, like how far out would you have all these pay-per-views named? Because right now WWE has maybe even released pay-per-view names for the next year, but they're not going to be so specific as to be named after a faction. If that makes sense. We weren't that far out with the names at that point. I would, probably say that the name and even the match really didn't come to be until August of that year. And and it was during the time that Vince was doing things more on the fly. Vince Russo was getting involved in creative and we were, times were changing. And Vince McMahon wanted to do things more spontaneous and re- you're reacting off of the live Monday Night Raws that we were doing. And it was just changing. He didn't want to be locked into anything. He wanted to have that ability, that flexibility to change on the fly. And if he had something hot, then we were going to name it that. It was it was already an in-your-house. He added the, the DX and it just took a, you know, took a life of its own. Let's talk a little bit about um, naming a pay-per-view after, you know, an act. Because that really hadn't been done at this point. There wasn't an in-your-house Stone Cold. You know, uh, next year we would see in-your-house Rock Bottom. But really, this is the first time that we got an in-your-house that was sort of named after a guy. Now, you could argue that Mind Games was a take on, you know, Mankind and uh, things like that. The, the only time I remember there being something like this was Taker's Revenge, but it was still relatively uncommon for it to be named after one particular act or faction, especially when that group may or may not have had, whether it was real or just perceived, heat in the back. Do you remember there being anybody who was crying foul about the, the show being named after some guys who weren't maybe the most well-behaved? No, okay. no. I mean, it was, again, it was it was a theme, and it was and it was just a name, and it was centered. It was centered around Shawn Michaels and being the new champion. The idea being to make DX special. At, at this point, here we are in December. We had Tyson, so we had Tyson for the next year that was going to do. Is is we got and you knew at this point Tyson was going to be a part of DX and all that. No, that no, that evolved. That happened as we got into it okay. changing. But we knew that Sean was going to be a part of it. Yes. I got you. So you needed to go ahead and establish the brand and the rebellious nature and all that. Exactly. I'm with you. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what set this up. Of course, we've, we've beat this up. Uh, it's available in our archives. We really don't need to spend a ton of time on it here, but I can't help but think that 
we need to at least touch on it. Of course, I'm talking about the Montreal screw job that happened the month prior, Survivor Series 1997. You know, there's lots of fallout from that show, and that's what we're really going to be talking about here. A ton of negative reaction from the boys um, in, in every locker room, but especially the WWF. And a lot of the guys even walked out on the company saying they were going to protest and and weren't going to stick around but i do want to talk about owen hart because after survivor series he's off tv and there's lots of rumor and innuendo and we addressed all this in the owen hart show uh, as well as the screw job shows you can hear all those at something to wrestle.com but during this time between survivor series and here where we're going to see him return on this pay-per-view is the black heart owen hart with a sort of a new look and a new gimmick a new push and allegedly a new contract uh and we're going to get into all that but first what was the contact like for you personally and owen hart between survivor series and this show not a whole lot most of the most of the contact was with vince and owen um, I did talk to Owen just to find out where his head was and everything, where he kind of fell in the fallout from Brett. Owen you know, had the same mindset of, Brett's not going to take care of my family, and this is what I'm used to. I'm home here in the WWF. But most of the, all of the negotiations were done with Vince McMahon. So most of the contact up until this point, you know, I had other than, hey, Owen, how you doing? Everything good? What can we do? Um, that was that was about the extent of it until that night with Owen. But we knew Owen was going to come back and, and had plans for him. And um, well, most of that, most of the negotiation was done with Vince McMahon. Let's talk about what Owen was doing with Vince, um, Meltzer would write that Owen was talked into working on November 12th in Barrie, Ontario, and he was doing so en route to a meeting in Connecticut the next day with Vince. And he wanted some form of apology. And of course, McMahon later showed on Raw a few days later, he has his own mind worked out to where all the problems were Brett's fault and wouldn't do so. This is all directly from The Observer. Uh, Meltzer wrote, Hart left the meeting and went home and was removed from all the house show bookings. McMahon and Owen had a second meeting on the 16th, again, not reaching a satisfactory ending. And the Titan position on the matter is that Hart is taking a hiatus to work everything out due to a family situation. Others portray it as Owen being given a deadline of either December 1st or January 1st, depending on the source, to return to work. But he has until that time off of work to work everything out since the company realizes he's in a bad position that is in no way his fault. Can you poke holes in that report from the observer? Yeah, because I think that Owen, yes, Owen did come in and he had a couple meetings with Vince. Owen was in a really tough situation. On one hand, he has his family situation where his brother just had this episode in Montreal. On the other hand, Owen has... The other side of that family situation, he has a wife and kids to take care of. Owen was happy. All of his friends were in the WWF. Owen had to look out for Owen. Of everybody in that Hart Foundation scenario, Neidhart and Davey, um, Owen was 
frankly, really the only one that we wanted to keep and that we really wanted and were willing to fight for. Vince put that ball in Owen's court. If Owen wasn't going to be happy and Owen was going to feel uh, uncomfortable or not trust Vince or Sean or anybody else going forward, then it wasn't going to work. So Vince laid out the different scenarios for Owen and Owen made his decision and Owen made his decision a lot earlier than most people believe um, because we knew where we were going at the pay-per-view. Hence why we took him off house shows and didn't even mention his name on television. Because when Owen came back as a surprise at the end of that, at the time, early on, my vantage point, I'm like, Man, we got a nice hot, easy. It's ready made. You got you've already got the angle right there. Sean and Owen. The story wrote itself. Um things obviously change, but that was the idea of Well, here's Owen my question back. on that, because you and I've talked about this before, and I asked that exact thing, and you sort of shit on it. Because we're not gonna see that at, at Royal Rumble. It's gonna be a casket yeah. match with him and Undertaker. Why wouldn't they have just had Owen return here? I feel like we're really just jumping to the end of the show now, but fuck it. Why wouldn't they have just seen what we're going to see on the show where Owen returns and it does get a reaction? It's very believable. Mm-hmm. And we're, we'll break down the whole segment in a little while. Why didn't they just pivot and go to Owen and Sean instead of going back to the old situation from SummerSlam? With Undertaker, Sean. Well, they did in-house shows, and that was the attraction. For pay-per-view, Vince, for whatever reason, didn't want to do it and didn't feel it was attraction. Uh, I disagreed with him, but it was it was something that... Listen, I'm going to say something that's going to upset everybody. Vince didn't feel like Owen was a main event guy at that time. Um... I mean, cause maybe was, not because he wasn't in the main event yeah maybe so not. therefore he wasn't yeah vince didn't think he wasn't you know that that, that was going around in house shows and, and coming off of that but no but, I, I mean I, he was let me put it this way owen was a main event guy um and i think he proved it in his program with brett i don't as a heel owen being the baby face and being a threat to sean and, and dx i don't think that i don't think vince was sold on that I hate to make a comparison here because, you know, these rarely work. But I feel like when we're talking about this, it sounds a lot like last week. Owen wasn't perceived as the main eventer. Brett was. Maybe Christian wasn't perceived as the main eventer. Edge was. Can you draw the parallel there? Similar, but not the same. And I I would agree it's not the same, but... Yeah, I mean, and again, as a heel, Owen Owen was, and, and he had a hell of a run with Brett. And I dare say, as I've said before, that Owen as the champion and a heel working with Brett, I think would have drawn a lot of money. No, I agree. I, I'm, I'm not saying that, that, that they, their talent wasn't to that level. I don't think anybody would argue that, that Owen and Christian are two of the best wrestlers of all time. I'm just saying for whatever reason, Vince didn't perceive them that way. Yeah, and I don't, but I also think in the back as you look as you look back on this thing whatever god has been 20 years 21 years since this show um when you look back on it it's you got to look at it a a little bit differently vince didn't want to continue to bring up the montreal screw job 
He addressed it, and in Vince's mind, I think that once he addressed it, he wanted it to be behind him. And the exact opposite took place in, in the audience. And that goes back to Vince McMahon's vision of himself, that he only saw himself as a play-by-play commentator and felt that the audience only saw him as a play-by-play commentator. They didn't see him as the owner of the organization until he, he came out and you know cut the promo. Brett screwed Brett. And now all of a sudden, Vince McMahon is, is in front of us as what he was, the owner and leader of the WWF. So let's talk about sort of what we're doing next here. Um, you know, the, the reason that business is the way it is, is a combination of things. You know, you've got the, the cool storylines. You've got these bigger than life characters. You've got a lot of positive, a lot of cool stuff. But what you've really got is the proof is in the pudding that what you're doing is working when you compare Gates, specifically from the prior year. In December of 1996, you guys were averaging 3,500 fans at your live events. Here, you're averaging 6,616. So just a year later, you're up 89%. Your average gate is up 89% as well going from $59,788 in December of 96. Here a year later, it's $113,241. An incredible, incredible leap. You're also selling out a much larger portion of your shows. Only 7.1% of your shows you ran in December of 96 were sold out. That's up to 35.7% by December of 97. Cable ratings, you can see it there too. You're going from a 1.3 average in December of 96 to a 2.2 so you're talking about a 69 percent jump really really incredible growth um you've got to feel comfortable in your position that hey we're heading in the right direction we may still be losing to wcw and yes that metric matters but as far as dollars we're doing better yeah we were and we felt that that we had some momentum and it was hoping to turn that corner and you look at the, you look at the horizon and and we're looking at good God, you know, stone cold Steve Austin. If this thing we hit on all cylinders and and that takes off, we were hoping Uh, that was, and this is the infancy of the Mr. McMahon character. That wasn't even a character at this point. He was a commentator, had an issue with Brett. He was a guy that screwed Brett, and he jumped into the forefront of the storylines, not by his choosing. Um, but it happened. And the audience, that was one that the audience clearly dictated what we were going to do and, and really changed the face of the business in many ways. So, you know, I know that I've asked this a thousand different times, and I'm going to continue to because that's just what I do. I'm not asking for you to defend the WWE's position. I'm not asking for you to defend Vince McMahon's decision. You personally, when you see, hey man, business is improving. We could have afforded to keep Brett. No. I think that a big part of, you got to understand, when you are looking at the roster as a whole, and you have to manage a roster of 70 guys, which is roughly what we had at that time. And you look at the disparity in what's 
what Brett's contract was pulling from the company at that time because so it was front-loaded. Let's pretend for a minute, and I know you didn't say these words, but let's pretend for a minute that what you're really talking about is a talent budget. Yeah. And so let's pretend it's a big pie. We're going to do the old pie chart routine. Brett was getting too big of a piece of the pie relative to what his drawing power was in your head. Yeah, in my head, in Vince's head, everyone's head. And Brett was asked to either, A, reduce that to make it more in comparable line. with everybody and be in line with that while Vince you know, got through it. So then maybe we can get back to that. But again, at the same time, all of the negotiations with Brett before that, it all came back to the alleged you know, $3 million deal at WCW that he walked which, away from. Which Eric denies. Okay. You well, call bullshit on Eric denying. I mean, Eric, I mean, all these years later, Eric's saying, oh, never happened. I never made an offer in 96. Um, he clearly did. I do think I do think that's bullshit. I do think he made an offer, yes. And, he, and here's the thing. When people, and I know people are going to tweet Eric and say that we talked about this, but. I'll call him right now. I, I just don't think that, I don't think Eric is intentionally lying. I think and, he and doesn't I'm gonna remember. Hate, that's right. I, I truly I think, believe that. I don't think he would intentionally lie. I do think that. He just isn't remembering it correctly because Meltzer, you, everybody for years and years and years has said that Brett was offered a deal in 1996. I yeah. mean, to the point where it's detailed in the book, et cetera, et cetera. Now, maybe it didn't get as far as some other people say that the discussion got, but certainly there were conversations. I believe there were conversations. I believe there were offers. I, I, I believe because again, that was part of the deal with Carl DeMarco and going back and forth and, and trying to negotiate the best deal for Brett. And you don't think that Brett was either fabricating it? Well, I, I was going to say you don't think he was slimy enough or shady enough or creative enough or whatever, slippery, maybe the best word, to just create a deal out of thin air. No. That you're, that you're negotiating nope, against. I don't. Now, because other guys have done that, Hogan, <clears throat> but but maybe you, you don't think Brett, that's not his MO. No. Yeah. I don't, I don't think Brett wanted to leave. Right. I truly believe that. And I don't think that Brett would have fabricated that and just, just done that as a power play because he had the deal. Yeah. He already had the deal. So, but he did keep, he would use that as a point of reference. Yeah, well, so I, I had $3 million this. in hand. I took less money here to be with you for the long term for the 20-year deal. Um, no, I don't. Th- I, I really and truly don't think that Brett would manipulate that way. So while we're talking about it, because I do want to mention it. Um, when you're talking about taking a pay cut for Brett to be sort of in line with everybody else. So there's not, there's not such a, a difference between him and, and some of the other top guys. Do you believe the request would have been get to that Undertaker, Shawn Michaels level? I think it would have been in line with all the top guys, yeah. Which is that time as Undertaker, Shawn yes. Michaels, and perhaps Stone Cold? At that time, it was at that time it was pretty much Undertaker, Shawn. Yeah. That was it. Those were the only two that were really at that level. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's get going here, and let's talk about how we got to this pay-per-view. And we're going to run through some raw recaps. We'll start with November 11th in Ontario, Canada. Um, there's It's a small building, only 3754 there, but that's a sellout of forty six grand and change. I'm mentioning this show particularly because we just talked about it last week. Edge and Christian worked the dark match. They were both at the Survivor Series the day of the Montreal Screwjob, but very quickly they realized, hey, uh, maybe we should leave 
So they show up the next day and do a dark match where Adam Copeland got a win over Christian Cage. You know, this is uh, sort of a surprise that it comes up a week later. I don't think I would have thought that we'd be talking about those guys a week later. And the best surprise you can give this holiday season is Omaha Steaks. Because you're going to be treating your family to world-class steaks, burgers, chops, and more with Omaha Steaks. They're a fifth-generation family-owned company with more than 100 years of experience delivering perfectly aged beef, hand-cut by master butchers right there in Omaha. Maybe best of all, though, all the beef is USDA-inspected, and you even have the option to customize your cuts. Right now, Omaha Steaks is giving an amazing limited-time offer to our listeners. All you've got to do is go to omahasteaks.com and enter the code WRESTLE into the search bar, and then you're going to get 74% off the Omaha Steaks family gift package. Originally, they had this thing priced at $195. And now somehow, incredibly, Bruce, our listeners can get it for under 50 bucks. It's only $49.99. And you get a whole bunch of stuff. Isn't that right, Bruce? Which, it's a bargain at $195 because the steaks are absolutely fabulous. But listen to what you get for only $49.99. Four. Count them. Four hand-cut top sirloin steaks, two premium pork chops, four chicken fried steaks, four Omaha steak burgers, four kielbasa sausages, all beef meatballs, four perfectly brown potatoes au gratin, and four of my favorite, camel caramel. Camel caramel apple tarts. Wait, they got camels? Well, you know. No, they have caramel apple tarts, and they are to die for. We'll put a scoop of ice cream on them. Holy Wait, shit, they're hang on, great. Hang on, hang on. Plus, it's not caramel. No, it's caramel. Wait, it's camel caramel caramel? Yes, apple tarts. <laughs> wow. And you heat them up in the oven, man, and then you put the ice cream on top of them. They fit a whole and- camel in this apple tart. Oh, it's incredible. Absolutely incredible. But that's not all. What? You also get an extra four burgers absolutely positively free sounds like double burgers double burgers you put the double cheese if you like it with mayo put some mayo on it with some onion and all you have to do to get this limited time package for only did i mention it is only 49.99 go to ohasteaks.com type wrestle in the search bar and add the family gift package to your cart. Only $49.99. It makes a great gift. Or order it for yourself and use it for entertaining during the Christmas seasons. <laughs> OmahaSteaks.com. Code WRESTLE. Let me mention, uh, I got one. And it's awesome. Yes, it is. Like, it's not just a great gift. Because I send these out to a bunch of people every year for Christmas. It's sort of become a tradition. They know when that box shows up, oh, Conrad's Christmas present to us is here. And they're excited about it because it really is, as they said in Christmas Vacation, it's the gift that keeps on giving because you can throw the stuff in your freezer and use it whenever you want. And every time they use one of these products, they're going to say, oh, this was the Christmas present. And also they say, they don't just say, hey, give me a steak. They say, hey, are we going to have Omaha steaks tonight? That's right. Uh, They're they're great cuts of beef. And um, if you've been sleeping on them, I don't know why you would. Go out of your way. Check it out, man. OmahaSteaks.com. And just type in wrestle into the search bar. You'll be glad you did, man. 74% off. It's the best $50 gift you can possibly give. Uh, so let's talk about what happened. Um, I can't believe this is real. But we get the Why Brett Why interview with Vince McMahon and Jim Ross. 
And this is one of the more famous interviews in the history of Monday Night Raw. Can we agree? I would agree with that. And, of course, JR saying, let's cut right to the chase. Seven days ago with the Survivor Series, did you or did you not screw Bret Hart? And, of course, famously, Vince says, Bret Hart screwed Bret Hart. And he can look in the mirror and know that. Um... When did you, and we've talked about this a little bit before, but when did you get on board with, this is the direction we got to go? Man, we were getting, there was so much backlash from a certain segment of the audience and and people that, people, uh, audience members that probably wouldn't normally speak up we're speaking up about this and and they it was a peek behind the curtain of the business vince felt it was important to address it and to address the the television audience and and talk about hey guys this is what happened and come out for the first time in his mind as the owner of the wwf and he made this decision and and kind of put the heat where he thought it should be and and I, I I really and truly believe, I don't believe, I know, Vince felt this was a babyface promo. 100%. 100%. Vince looked at it as, as this was a babyface promo on his part because he was explaining to the audience, I did this for you. I did this for all of the superstars of the WWF, and I did this for you, the audience, that support us, that Brett didn't want to do the time-honored tradition and, and do what was right. So, in Vince's mind, he's telling the audience, hey guys, in order to continue to bring you the entertainment we bring you every week, this is why I had to do what I had to do, but Brett made me do it. So he wanted to put the onus on Brett and try to take it away from the company, in particular him. I don't even think he was trying to say him even as much as is the company didn't screw Brett. Brett screwed Brett. It's a pretty famous interview. They go through a lot of things, including what the offer was from WCW and Vince McMahon even takes credit for helping him get that. Uh, And then they discuss things like, you know, whether or not he was going to pursue legal action against Brett. That maybe even at 52 years old, it would have been a different circumstance. Had they had a real skirmish. Just crazy, man. I mean, this interview, is this really, you know, some people point to his whole, we're not going to insult your intelligence and say it's good guys versus bad guys and say that's the beginning of the Attitude Era. Some people say it starts with this interview. Can you sort of put your finger on when you think it was? I'll tell you exactly when it was. Okay. The the beginning of the attitude era in Vince McMahon's mind, and quite frankly, where the word attitude Oh, I know where you're going became a thing. This was when Shawn Michaels wore the bicycle shorts and stuffed the front of his shorts and went down and cut the promo and continued gesturing towards his crotchal area and jumping up and putting his crotchal area in Jim Ross's face. That was the one night, that was the one moment where Vince used to look at us and go, that's attitude. Right there, that's attitude. 
we need to have more attitude. That's when it officially, that's when it began and that's when it became that phrase. It does feel like you guys knew you were going to turn this into an angle here and go with it as a creative decision when the interview with Vince ends with him saying that he's over it now, but then eventually says it's too damn bad that in the end, Brett really wasn't the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. And he had the opportunity to live up to that. And in his final match in the WWF, he failed. Did you produce that interview? No. When did you see it? Did you see it? Before? I saw a lot. I was there when it, when it was done. That was all Vince. So you, you were there when it was being filmed? Yes. And did you think, well, he's a television character now? The what? Did you think Vince McMahon was now a television character? No. Um, well, let me put it this way. That guy... That guy you saw in that interview was the Vince McMahon I know, and that was that was truer. That's real life Vince. That's that was real Mr. life. McMahon. That was that was real life Vince McMahon. So, <laughs> as I had said for years prior to that, that Vince was a heel. He's a heel. And also, as I stated before, that Vince looked at this as a is a total babyface promo. He was stating the case for the company. And for the fans. And that Brett had screwed the fans. Brett screwed the company and Brett screwed Brett. It's a pretty notable show, too, because this is where we see Rocky Mavia, um, steal Stone Cold Steve Austin's Intercontinental title. It's also where, you know, we get the, the very beginning of, I don't know, the the... You get to see at home maybe the impact of the screw job because this is where Rick Rude shows up on both channels. Right. And we've talked about that on our Rick Rude episode, which is available in the archives. I feel like I'm saying that a lot today, but we've covered a lot of this backstory. But he shows up on Nitro and it's a taped draw. And you've told that story, but in hindsight, that's a pretty big score for WCW, is it not? Yes and no. Um, yes, because they got the jump on us and they had one of our guys who had been on our pay-per-view and our television the week before and who they kept it under wraps. They did a great job of that, but we were taped. We were in the studio. Vince had done the interview that day and then Vince was in, in studio when we were going to be doing the live voiceovers for the event that, for the for the raw that night. So when rude showed up, we're like, well, fuck we've got, we didn't have time to edit it out. We didn't have time to any, do anything. We were scrambling and, you know, had to make comments on the air about it. Well, you think you're seeing double and, and say that the show was taped, but it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty big coup on WCW's part, but I don't think it was, it was a one night coup. I don't think that Rick, added a whole lot to WCW going forward from that point that he got the payoff that night and that was it. I feel like we should mention here that this show also sees Mark Miro throw out a challenge for Butterbean. Unbelievable. Uh, we see DX get laid out or lay out um, 
Sergeant Slaughter, rather. And we also see Dude Love beat The Rock in the main event. But, of course, there's a Nation of Domination run-in. Austin's making the save. It's a pretty action-packed show, even if it is taped. But as a result, Nitro being live and just being the hotter brand, Nitro gets a 4.1. Raw only gets a 3.1. Let's go to the November 24th Raw. Lots of controversy on this one. Uh, Meltzer was, was very critical of it. Um, they're trying to tease that Bret Hart is going to be at the show. And they've even, they've even got a main event listing in the USA Today saying that it's going to be Bret Hart versus Shawn Michaels. And Vince McMahon is coming out and saying things like, um, well, I mean, help me understand here why did you guys think this was a good idea to market and promote Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels when you knew the payoff would be a little person well because the payoff was heat first of all and it was a heel promising that Bret Hart was going to be there it wasn't the promotion doing it and it was a way to gain viewers people were at home they weren't paying for it so it wasn't a bait and switch. Hey, pay me your money to see Bret Hart. It was a television storyline, and it was meant to draw viewers to see what are they going to do? What are they talking about? What are they going to do? And that's all it was. And it was a skit. It was a skit designed to do what it did. Get heat. That's what we did. You know, I know you're going to try to hang your hat on the idea that it was a heel that was promising it, but you don't think there was any sort of bait and switch there at all? A bait and switch is when you advertise something, someone comes to the store, they buy, they go to buy something, and then you switch it on them and you try and get them to buy something else at a much higher price. No one was paying for this. No one in that arena thought, they were paying to see Bret Hart versus Shawn Michaels. On television, yes, we did promote it, and it was DX saying Bret Hart's going to be here, I'm going to kick Bret Hart's ass, and so on and so forth. But it, was, it wasn't a promotion. Give me your money to see Bret Hart, then I'm going to screw you on that. That's not what it was. It was a television swerve, bro, that was used to garner ratings. We were in a ratings war, and that's what we were trying to do at that time. How big of a concern was it that you were going to lose part of the Canadian audience when Brett left? None. I asked because the Toronto Sun did a reader's poll, and 55% of those who responded said they were more likely to watch WCW wrestling than WWF wrestling because Brett left. Do you put any stock in that at all? No. I do want to ask you, too, about off the record. And we've talked about that TSN show with Michael Landsberg quite a bit. Brett uh, had an interview scheduled with them and Vince McMahon went and got himself booked the very next day so he could have a response. Once Brett saw that Vince did that, he canceled his booking. So then Vince ultimately canceled his own booking as well. Do you remember that? Yeah, well, Vince, Vince wanted to be on. Vince wanted to rebut anything that Brett said and felt that it was worth and by the way 
off the record was the one that came and said, hey, we're going to have Brett. Could we have Vince? You know why? Because they wanted ratings. So they had gone out and booked Brett, and then they went out and booked Vince, and Vince agreed to do it. But Brett didn't do it, so they felt, well, we really have nothing for him to rebut. And Vince was like, okay, great. Vince didn't cancel. They canceled because they didn't have the, the point-counterpoint. Whose idea was the little person? In a costume dressed up as Bret Hart? I think it was Russo. Either Russo or Cornette. One of them came up with it, as far as I remember. Who liked the idea of having Harvey Wilkman come out as Rigger's replacement? And they just push him in the face and say, oh, that was a tough spot to do. I don't remember whose idea it was in particular, but at the same time, thought it was fair. You know, fair is fair, okay? You know, rude is on their show, and he was here, and let's go ahead and address it, be done with it, move on. Of course, November 24th, also notable because this is when Jesse James and Billy Gunn, who aren't even called the New Age Outlaws yet, Win the tag titles from LOD. Pretty big moment in their careers, you think? Yeah, it was. And, and this was during the time I remember where Sean had actually come to us, and, and it was Sean's idea to put them together as a tag team. He was like, you know, let's put them together as a tag team. I think they'd be great. We've been struggling with the singles of of the Road Dog and, and Real Double J, Jesse James. And the cowboy Billy Gunn with Honky Talk Man, and, and the singles weren't working. However, you know, Sean had been out with those guys and, and felt that they had really good chemistry together and suggested them as a tag team. Well, the singles sure as hell wasn't working. Put them together as a tag team, and they became very successful. The idea was down the road for them to be a part of DX, but they wanted to establish him as a tag team first. British Bulldog and Jim Neidhart, of course, are not going to take the Owen Hart route. Eventually, they wind up signing with WCW. Um, do you think if, if they would have stuck around, Vince would have tried to talk them into joining DX or some of these anti-Brent skits? I mean, there's a lot of what if. I, I don't think so. I, I think that once Brett left, that there was so much in the air and plus the blowback on it. In general, the, there could have been a lot of what ifs at the same time when you're talking about those guys. There wasn't a lot discussed. I think that both Bulldog and Jim thought that, hey, man, if I leave here, I'm going to get a better deal over there because it's it's more WWF guys going to WCW and they're they're giving out all this money, you know, ATM Eric, and he's paying everybody everything. So if we come to, we'll be more of those WWF guys on WCW. So I think they were looking for a big payday, and I hate to say it, but it wasn't that big of a loss. The main event of this show sees Hunter pin Neidhart two and a half minutes after Sean hit him with the chair. Of course, after the bout, they give him a pedigree on the chair and then spray paint WCW on his back. Um, he tries to make a comeback, but China handcuffs him to the ropes and they're beating on him until Sergeant Slaughter makes the save. Um, the show goes off the air with Ken Shamrock putting Shawn Michaels in the ankle lock. Chat me up here. Why not try to go Owen Hart, Shawn Michaels here? Because we were planning on Owen being the surprise. When was the decision made that this spot is not for Undertaker, 
who Sean already had sort of a built-in feud storyline with, you know, them wrestling in both, uh, of course, the, the screw job in August with the referee spot and the chair, but then they had matches in September and October on pay-per-view, including the whole stuff, shorts thing. November, he gets screwed, or he screws Sean, or Brett, rather. Why not go back here and do it? Why pivot to Kenshin? The idea was to give Sean a, a win as champion. It's Sean's as the heel and in this spot. Now, his champion, his first title defense, give him a win. Give him a win over a credible opponent without having to invest time in an angle, in a, a, big, a big angle, long-term deal. The idea behind Kenny at that time, give him a good match, give him a good win. But it was just get the title out there. We weren't looking for this match to set the world on fire as far as drawing and being a long-term angle. Spray painting WCW and Jim Neidhart. What was his reaction? Well, I think Jim liked it. I mean, it really does feel kind of shitty. Yeah, I, I don't think Jim liked it. Um, but we, we were in a war. We were, we were doing edgy things. We were, we were getting out there with some of the things that we were doing. We were um, playing by a new set of rules where there were no rules. The old rules didn't exist anymore. The old norm wasn't wasn't the norm anymore. I want to mention some news and notes here as we get ready for the pay per view. Um, it comes out that Stevie Richards had a meeting with Titan, and he returns back to the ECW shows, saying that he was offered a spot in DX but turned it down. That's not true. Yeah, I, I didn't think it was, but you did have a conversation with him. Uh, you did probably make an offer. Uh, he had, at that point, whether you remember this or not, he had already left ECW and went to WCW, joined Raven's Flock. He wasn't tickled with the spot. It doesn't wind up being a long-term deal. Eventually, he would be brought in, so we knew he at least had conversations with you guys. I met him at a bar in Stanford. Okay. Tell me about it. I offered to bring him in and be a part of the light heavyweight division and felt that, given time, that he could be the face of that light heavyweight division. He wasn't interested in being a light heavyweight. And he said that at the meeting? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. I think St- I think Stevie in his in his mind, uh oh, like Sean Martin. Yes. Yeah. Exactly what he thought. But there was no there was no big offer made. It was, hey, we'd like to have you. Why didn't you guys think he was an expert Sean Martin? A lot of reasons. He 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 was nowhere near the worker that Shawn Michaels was. Not even close. He was a, a young guy with talent that we felt, hey, let's bring him in. But he he didn't have the experience. He didn't have the possession. He had an upside, but he wasn't here. Possibly. He had potential. Um, Bret Hart does a prodigy chat around this time. He says that he thinks Jim Neidhart made a mistake in judgment going along <laughs> with those angles that had happened in the final two weeks in the WWF. And he thought that the WWF humiliated Jim by spying against him, which is Brett. What, what do you think of that? I mean, I can understand Brett thinking that, but at the same time, from a company standpoint, <laughs> you're looking at, hey, it got heat with Brett. Okay, here's one of the boys. 
if it gets heat with the boys, if the boys buy it, if the boys sell it, then usually the audience is going to buy it and the audience is going to sell it. So for that very reason in and of itself, it worked. In the same part of the chat, uh, Brett responds to the criticism where he had been critical of the direction of the company, specifically with the more racy, edgy, adult-rated stuff. And he was critical of Vince McMahon, of course, most of all for that. But Vince would respond to some of that criticism by saying, well, before WrestleMania 13 on Raw, you're cussing into the microphone on TV. Brett would say in this Prodigy chat that he thought they were off the air. He didn't realize until after the fact that they weren't off the air. Now, I realize you're going to make a smirk and say, that's bullshit. But that is a show where you went over. And I know you're going to say, but we knew we were going over. So you went over here a lot of times. They even ran a crawl across the bottom saying silk stockings were started, blah, blah, blah. So it was an unusually long segment, and they stayed with it. As a reminder, you should go watch this. It's the go-home episode of Raw right before WrestleMania 13, one of the best episodes of Raw ever up to that point. But everything had sort of been into a tailspin where um, the original main event, of course, wasn't going to happen because Sean lost his smile. Everything's shaken up as a result. So you get this really cool spot where Brett gets screwed in the cage match, and he pushes down Vince McMahon in the ring grabs the mic and said he's sick and tired of this bullshit and everybody in that goddamn dressing room blah 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 phenomenal promo it felt real and brett would say he didn't know he was on the air was brett baby facing in the chat oh my god you know brett hart and brett doesn't get nearly the credit for this that he really should brett hart was such an innovator and brett hart was a guy that would constantly come up with new ideas, new ways to do things, to give people something that they thought they weren't supposed to get. A mistake. Um, oh, that wasn't supposed to happen. Brett knew. And Brett was given that line. And the idea behind it was just that. It was a mistake. Oh my God. Brett was so pissed off he cussed on TV. That was what it was designed for. And that's what it did. And it worked. So, yeah, Brett did know. And a lot of that, you know, you go back, I'll go back to WrestleMania 12, where Brett wanted to work with boys. And, and it was Brett's idea to storm out of the building that day and create the animosity between him and Sean so that even the boys would be buzzy. Boy, Brett was pissed off after that. Brett didn't like losing the title, and he's upset with Sean, and he's never going to come back and do it. That was that part of it. That was Brett's creation. Brett was constantly creating things in new and different ways, and had social media been what it is today back then, I dare say that I believe Brett probably would have used that and been one of the first to utilize that to further his storylines and get things going. I do want to mention in the same chat, he blamed the previous problems with Hulk Hogan that he had on Vince McMahon putting thoughts and words into his head. And after realizing what happened at the Montreal Screwjob, now he realizes the kind of person that Vince McMahon is. And he says he wants to talk to Hogan to find out the real story of what happened. 
And we know what we're talking about here. He, we talked about it, you know, fussed and screamed and cussed about it. Realistically, I think there's something to what Brett's saying here that Vince was trying to play both sides against the middle with Hogan and Brett in 93 just to keep the peace. I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. There's, there's probably three sides to that story. And, you know, at the same time, that didn't that didn't stop Brett from cutting the promos that he had cut on Hogan prior to going to work at the company that Hulk Hogan is now involved in. So, um, if Brett was still in the WWF at the time, I think that he still would have, you know, not thought that. But, it, again, it was, um, it was all an unfortunate situation that took place, and Brett's got to protect himself. Brett has a family that he's got to feed at this point. So Brett's going to do everything that he can for his new company and be able to plug himself at WCW. That's exactly what he was doing. This same interview on Prodigy, he says that he would turn down an offer to join the WWE Hall of Fame if ever offered. Of course, we know years later he would go in. He admitted he wasn't proud of his actions in the locker room. And then he talked about Earl Hebner. He says that a lot of people probably think that Earl was just doing his job, and maybe he was. But he suspected something like this might be up. So when he confronted Earl before the match, he says Earl got teary-eyed and said he would never, ever do something like that and swore on his children. And I mentioned this to you because when it came time for Eric Bischoff and I to talk about Starcade 97, which is the pay-per-view that you guys ran sort of head-to-head, it's the same month as the one we're covering today. December of 97, Meltzer wrote in his recap that one of the original plans for the main event where there was a special guest referee, it was drawn by a lottery. They hadn't announced who that referee was going to be yet, so they had a drawing on the pay-per-view Starcade. And Nick Patrick won, and Nick Patrick had most famously been the NWO heel referee. Meltzer says the original plan that he was told was they were going to try to get Earl Hebner. And so when the randomized drawing happened, it would be a logical explanation as to why a new referee's here, and oh my goodness, it's the same one as your Brett, which would make a whole hell of a lot of sense if then that is what Brett came down and said, I'm not letting this happen again. Eric Bischoff said, that's bullshit. We never had a conversation with him. I don't think we could have even gotten him. And even if we could, there's no fucking way Bret Hart would have went for it. Now, that's what we're going to talk about on Monday with Eric Bischoff on 83 Weeks. Catch me up on your perspective. Well, I never I never heard that with Earl. And I believe 100% that Eric never had a conversation with him. I don't believe that Bret would have gone for it. And Earl wouldn't have gone for it. It would have been a hell of a story. Maybe it would have been, but it was all going to happen. 100% fiction, so, and I don't know and I don't know of anybody that ever would have discussed it other than people say, oh my god, what if they did this? I bet they were going to try to do this and try to create scenarios that they could believe it might happen because some guy in California types it up in his dirt sheet. I don't believe it certainly wasn't any scuttlebutt or any rumor or anything going around in our locker room from that. It certainly wasn't something that I think that Earl Hebner would have ever entertained. I don't think Eric Bischoff would have entertained it. Eric might have entertained it. I don't know. Maybe he would have. 
it was that good of a deal. But I don't think Brett would have gone for it. Uh, not that close. No way. Yeah. No how. No, not right. happening. I agree with you on that. Here's something we've never really discussed. What type of contracts were the referees under at that point? Could it have even happened? You know, rumored innuendos back in the day, referees were just on nightmares. I mean, who gives a shit? It's a referee. But that would have been a pretty big deal. Pretty big coup that could have pulled it off. And we'll just ran through all the reasons why it shouldn't happen or couldn't happen and ultimately didn't happen. But could it have happened? Was Earl under a contract? I don't know. I, I, be- I, believe, I believe they were. But it was it wasn't like a guaranteed contract or anything like that. Uh, most a lot of the referees were ring crew, right? So they were employees to the company, and then they also refereed, or they were independent contractors to the company, but for uh, the ring crew, and then they also refereed. Um, Earl was different because all Earl did was referee. I God, I couldn't tell you. I don't know. I don't. I don't remember if at that point. That they were any, under any kind of contract or anything like that. Let's get to the pay-per-view, man. You know, I feel like we do this every time we talk. For about but also, let me just go back and it just because it always, it always gets me. When Brett had that conversation with Earl, it was the night before the pay-per-view. It was not right before the match. It was the night before the pay-per-view, and Earl was not told to do what he did in that match until literally right before he went to the ring. So Earl didn't have that Earl didn't have that information Man, all day long. Nobody talks about that enough. I'm glad you're mentioning that because realistically, what choice did you even really leave Earl at that point other than to go out there with his stomach in knots? Yeah. Nervous as hell, but knowing it's too late. I can't I mean, he could have not done it, but he would have had to, in a split split second, right. decided, uh, I'm basically out of the wrestling business, which is all I know. Right. I mean, he could have made the decision not to do it and hoped that, well, I kept my word to Brett. Brett's going to take me to WCW with him. Which is tall leap of faith. And, and, and again, it's he, he was asked to do his job. And he was told. Because, again, for Earl's sake, if Earl had known prior to that, it gives him too much time to think about it. And then it is on his conscience. And then he's, he's got to say, oh, yeah, I did know that. And, and I'm really sorry about that. And so on and so forth. He didn't have time. <laughs> he didn't know. And he was told right before he went out to the ring. So... I, that you know, that's it put Earl in a, in a precarious position. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't right before. Hey, don't screw me. It was a conversation was had the night before. Before he knew. Yes, I couldn't see. I couldn't see him or anybody at that point. Nearly anybody. I couldn't see most people making a different decision than what Earl did. Just at a split second, very last minute worked here for a long time. You gotta decide right then. I couldn't either. Yeah. You do what you have to do for your family. Well, I can see you saving some money with simple contacts, man, because they let you conveniently renew your contact lens prescriptions and reorder your contacts from anywhere in minutes. 
this is vision care for the 21st century. You see, the simple contacts vision test is self-guided and takes less than five minutes. Now, I want to mention it isn't a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam, but it will save you so much time and money whenever you need to renew and reorder. It was designed by ophthalmologists, and a licensed doctor is going to review every single test. So you can skip the office visit, but not the care. Simple Contacts is all the brands and types of lenses you're familiar with, so you never have to shop around to find your lenses at the best price. But best of all, and Simple Contacts is going to save you some money. The vision test is just 20 bucks, and their Contacts lens prices, well, they're unbeatable, and standard shipping is free. Uh, Bruce, how would Dusty talk about his experience with Simple Contacts? Maybe he'd talk about how easy it is. It is so simple to make you funky like a monkey and to deliver them right to your home. And the best part about it is, baby, you're going to save more money than you could possibly imagine. Just because you listen to us, your shipping is going to be absolutely free. Now, why wouldn't you do that? Get $20 off your contacts right now at simplecontacts.com slash wrestle. Or just enter the promo code wrestle at checkout. That's simplecontacts.com slash wrestle. Or in a wrestle and checkout, and you're going to get twenty dollars off your contacts. Uh, I've used this; it's easy. The eye exam—I got to admit—I thought, and this was a little weird. I don't know about this. I was wrong. It's easy. Check it out. If you wear contacts, it is the fastest, easiest way to get this thing done. All right, let's talk about in your house DX. It draws a sellout. Seven. I'm sorry, six thousand three hundred fifty-eight fans paying one hundred and twelve grand at the gate. And another 44000 in merchandise. Uh, the first matchup, uh, it's a pretty fun match. It gets three stars. And this, believe it or not, is the finals of the light heavyweight tournament. The one we were just talking about that you were maybe, possibly, talking to Stevie Richards about. As a reminder, in round one, we had Aguilera beat Super Loco. We had Takamichinoku beat Devin Storm. Scott Taylor, who's going to go on to be Scotty Too Hotty, would beat Eric Shelley. Brian Christopher would beat Flash Flanagan. And then, now, eventually, here we are in the finals with the two big dogs of the division, Takamichi Noku and Brian Christopher. They get 12 minutes and 2 seconds, and this is actually going to be the crowning of Takamichi Noku. He gets the win here. It's a pretty big deal because on the other channel, man, they're making the most of the cruiserweight division, and you guys respond with Brian Christopher your favorite wrestler, Taka Michinoku. Why do you hate talking, man? I don't, but the, the idea that you guys see Psychosis, and you see Rey Mysterio, and you see Hooventude, and you're like, God damn, let's get talking. It doesn't fit. Taka was, was probably the hottest light heavyweight in, in the entire business. Let's thing. fucking turn this off, right? I don't want to talk. Taka, Taka was he the was biggest light heavyweight in the entire oh, large, world. Physically large, yes. No, he he was he was the hottest no, in the business. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. It wasn't harder than Ray. Yeah, it was. No, it wasn't. Yeah, it was. No, it wasn't. It was. Was it? Yes. Wasn't harder than Hayabusa. Yeah. Who? W- wasn't harder than Great Sasuke. Bless you. Wait, but Taka Michinoku, no bless you? Taka Michinoku was the single most sought after. Fuck you. He was. Compared to what? Compared to everybody that was available out there. You would have rather had, in 1997, Taka than Rey Mysterio. We did have the ability no, to have no, Rey no, Mysterio. No, no. I said, no, no, I said free agent and people that were available. Oh, okay. And Taka was the hottest guy you out there. You didn't free agent, just threw free agent in there. No, I didn't. I said, I said that earlier. Hottest. 
He said he was the hottest, you know, yeah. He was. But you didn't say free agent. Yeah, I did. Still, he was. All right, well, how much? Yeah, we didn't want Sasuke. Okay. Sasuke had way too much baggage and was a prima donna, and that was probably one of the reasons we Sasuke in, so that he could put Taka over, because Taka had worked for his company. And everybody was raving about how great Sasuke was, and I think Taka worked circles around Sasuke. He was younger. And more people buzzing? No, listen. I know. You wanna, we're going to have him to a live show one day so he can fillet him. I, I know where we are. But I guess my question is, what do you think of this match? The finals are Brian Christopher and Taka Michinoku. Is this the finals that you envisioned when you say, hey, man, let's bring this division back. What if we had this badass tournament and it gets down to Taka and Brian Christopher? Yes. And what do you think of the match? Oh, the match was great. It, it is a good, good match. I'm sure it was a good match. It, you know what was match. distracting to me about how good of a match it was? What's that? Was, well, King, why don't you, why don't you tell him that? Why don't you call Spade Spade? He's a chip off the old block, isn't he, King? Are you proud of your son? And, and Lawler completely either ignoring it, denying it, you know, whatever the hell it was. But JR's insistence on hammering that throughout the match. Uh, Which it took away from. I, you know, JR is, is the greatest commentator of all time, but every now and again he would try to put an angle over more than the match. And if he would have just called the action on this, it may have been better. And we've only right. given that critique for JR maybe one time ever, and that's this one. Uh, let's talk about the next match. Uh, this is interesting because you've got. <laughs> Do we have to talk about the next match? I, I, I want you to run down the names because I want you to break out your uh, your rolling R's that you like so much. Well, we had um, Chains, Skull, and Eight Ball facing the team of Los Boraricuas, Miguelito Perez y Jesus Castillo y Jose Estrada. Junior. I love that you just go full gimmick on it. They go seven minutes and 57 seconds. Crush is still absent here, uh, still suffering from a neck injury. Um, Savio Vega comes out with Los Bariquos, but then is ordered to the back. Uh, it only gets a quarter star. Uh, Meltzer would say, match wasn't much, but the finish was good. What did you think of the match? Oh, it was drizzling shit. It was. It's a fucking train wreck, man. It was... Um, no rhyme or reason, <laughs> and it was an absolute train wreck. Not good. Not good. Who was so high on those Bariquas and this this biker gang? Vince was high on factions. You must have factions. Gang warfare, pal. Factions, battling factions. People can relate to that. And uh, Los Bariquas are all great workers. Every single one of them great workers. I'm not crapping on that, but, but the gimmick is off. But it was it was just it's sort of there. The, okay, yeah. It's it's vanilla ice cream. I mean Yeah. Nobody you cared. You can have it, but I mean Nobody cared. Yeah. Jesus and, and well, really Jesus was was past his prime and, and Miguelito was um ah, Miguelito Miguelito all of them were good. Thing, but they just nobody cared. You know what's funny is to me, Perez will always be the hairy back dude. Yeah, like no matter anytime I talk about him, they always say hairy back dude. And to me in wrestling, that came down to like three dudes: it's him, Dutch Mantel, 
and Albert. I put George Steele in there. Oh yeah, yeah, but I'm not fifty, so I don't throw that name out there. No, you're not. But uh, I saw Miguelito at a fan convention a couple years ago, and he was smooth as a baby's butt. Yeah, must have a new lady. I was like, oh my god. But I mean, it, it, the funny thing about it was he wasn't recognizable. Right, because he was wearing his yeah, tank top. I need your sweater, bro. Who the fuck is that? Why are your sweater in the way? Yeah. That's what we need. Uh, let's talk about the next match. This is interesting. I can't wait to hear about oh, the red boy. tape that was involved. Um, you know, sometimes people want us to cover the good shows, but every now and again, when you've got some interesting horseshit, it makes it more fun. And here is some of that. Butterbean would beat Mark Marrow by DQ. In what was billed as a four-round tough man contest, uh, this becomes a DQ because of a low blow ten seconds into the fourth round. Meltzer would write, It's almost hilarious, in a sense, all the political red tape involved in the billing of this match. It couldn't be called a boxing match because boxing is regulated and theoretically thus can't be worked. But it couldn't be called a boxing exhibition because Butterbean had a fight. If you could call it that, the previous night in Atlantic City, on the Oscar De La Hoya pay-per-view. Um, so they wind up calling this thing a tough man contest, and a lot of this is because of the athletic commissions. Uh, chat me up here. What do you remember the the particular challenges being? I imagine that gloves are a big part of this. God, it was, in my opinion, it was just such horse shit. Um, yeah, you can't call it a boxing match because you can't work a boxing match. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Sure you can't. Um, and the exhibition thing, because it was too close to an actual fight. We had relationships with uh, De La Hoya's team. We, we were working, actually worked together with, with Oscar. And the idea also during this time was we were doing Univision stuff and, and working with them in different ways. Oscar was heavily involved in that. Um, Butterbean, great guy. Uh, terrific guy. And his manager, uh, Art Door, I believe is his name. But Bean, man, Bean's, Bean's a working son of a bitch and, and a legit badass. And Bean was willing to work with us. So Mark Marrow also you know, we have Holy fun gloves. here. Yeah, yeah, we have fun here with Mark Merrill, but but Mark Merrill, legit badass. I would never, ever in a million years, and I think anybody that would get into fisticuffs with Mark Merrill would come out on the losing end. Well, that's what's great about Mark now is now he would knock your fucking ass out, but then he'd give you a speech and make you feel better about it. Yeah, exactly. He turned your life around when he yeah. got done beating your ass. So Mark, Mark was Mark was legit, you know, boxer, um, and Bean was a legit. He did the t- that was his tough man gimmick. He fought in the super heavyweight division to where Bean was so big, so powerful, that if he touched you, you die. Right. And he was skilled as a big, powerful guy. So he wasn't just a big, powerful guy that, that got in there and he, he was skilled. He knew what he was doing. So he was a good boxer. If Bean was ever able to train and be able to get to a heavyweight, his punch, his power was, was man, it was there. It was maybe even better than some of the best heavyweights. But he was just a big guy. And he had his niche, man. He was a super heavyweight tough guy. 
um, had some notoriety. So we thought it was a kind of nice mix to showcase, you know, Merrill in a different way. Um, if it were a shoe, yeah, that's an interesting question. I don't know. The, the, the problem with the athletic commission building this damn thing as a tough man contest is I think the gloves were like 18 ounces. Oh, yeah, they had to wear 18 ounce gloves instead yeah. of 12 ounce gloves, which think makes, about that makes all the difference in the world. You're carrying around over a pound on each hand. Now, people say, oh, a pound, how heavy is that? Try keeping, just take, take a pound, one pound, and walk around with your hands up around your face for three minutes at a time and throw punches. Yeah, grab two 20-ounce bottles of soda. There you go. And just box with them for three minutes. Right. And that's just one round. Yes. Yeah. And try doing that for multiple rounds. And on... Beans Bart and Bean had just been training for a boxing match. Smaller gloves. Marrow, a boxer. Had only, you know, really ever fought with 12-ounce gloves. So that kind of limited it as well. You're not going to, your your punches aren't as crisp. Your punches aren't as. So Bean's not got the wind to go long. He's used to knocking dudes out fast. He's also used to smaller gloves. Meltzer would even say, Bean looked terrible. In fact, it looks as though if it had been a real boxing match that Mara, who has real boxing experience, as opposed to the gimmick stuff Bean does, would have taken him apart at will. And he talked about how much taller Mara was, so he certainly had the height advantage. And you sort of alluded a minute ago, I don't know, in a shoot, that might be interesting. Yeah, it really, it, it might be, because again, on the skill level and speed and everything else, Mara had him, but Man, I got moved by Bean, you know, just playing around with him. And he's got uncanny strength. I think Bean connecting with one of those punches would have would have sent Mark <laughs> would have sent Mark flying. Um, Merrill getting inside of him, and now it's not like a damn boxing analysis. But it, it would have been interesting. I, I couldn't call that one, but I think if Bean hits you, man. On the nose, he'd have been dead. The night before, the pay-per-view or the show that he worked on in Atlantic City, promoted by De La Hoya, Sable was a ring girl. Right. So you guys were trying to do some stuff, and this match is almost really Butterbean's forgotten WBF appearance. Most people remember him from the Bar Gun debacle at WrestleMania. Um, after this... I'd like to forget about this appearance. I mean, when did you realize this is a fucking... Disaster. When the bell rang. <laughs> it just... Um, it got a dud rating. Are you surprised? No, it, it was... It was terrible. Again, you're, you're trying to apply a, a work sport to a shoot, and it's, it's easy to do in the movies and create and choreograph some great boxing scenes and never touch anybody. It's a little different um, doing it in a, in a wrestling ring and, and not having all those camera angles at your advantage. So um, it was a shit show. Not good at all. Talk to me a little bit about how you put this together. Do, do they put it together the day of, or do they have time to work through it before? Uh, no, they put it together. It was day of. Speed was training for a fight. Um, and Marrow felt that, that he would not have a problem with it. Bean felt really comfortable and, and confident he was going to win his match the night before, which I think he did in the first round. 
Um, and they they were fine with it. The, to me, the downfall of it was the fact that it went more than one round. <laughs> because now time and weight just became the enemy of, of holding those gloves up and keep going, man. It was that's hard to do and it showed. I mean, it showed those guys were dragging in the second round. Next up, we have an interview with Goldust and Luna, and they have Goldust read from the Dr. Seuss book, Green Eggs and Ham. Meltzer would say, he read in the most stereotypical gay, lisping voice that he possibly could. His waistline is becoming more reminiscent of his father's with every passing week. He's always had a weird grudge with Dustin. What would you think of this promo here, Green Eggs and Ham? The idea behind it was the old, you know, Andy Kaufman reading the the book on stage, reading the entire The Great Gatsby. He read the entire book, and and I think there's one guy left at the end type shit. That was the idea behind it. Uh, Christmas time goes out, reads Green Eggs and Ham. Um, the lisp was reminiscent over the dead end, if you will, baby. And that was Dustin's way uh, of doing that. And um, I think Dusty and Dustin were still kind of estranged at this time, but it was, man, it was a way to get a character over. So, update Meltzer. Billy Gunn and Jesse James are going to retain the tag titles, beating LOD by DQ, 10 minutes and 33 seconds. He gets a dud rating, tons of stalling up front. They're going to say that Billy Gunn was sick here. Do you believe that to be true, that Billy Gunn was sick here, and that's the reason they had to change the matchup? Billy Gunn had asthma. Um, not only he was, I don't remember particularly that he was sick here, but I do know one of the reasons Billy's a better tag team wrestler is because of his asthma. And he, he does have some breathing issues sometimes. Um, this match, the LOD and the New Age Outlaws, it was Clash of Styles. They didn't mesh well together. And you got two young guys in, in Billy and Road Dog who are trying to get over. They're busting their ass. They see this opportunity. And then you have two older guys kind of in the twilight of their career at this point that are trying to stay over. Um, not, yeah, this was, this was another one of those. And as I'm sitting here, we, we just went back to back like three really shitty matches. It's a really shit show. But, okay, you say it was a shit show. I enjoyed watching it. It was it was one of those, it was almost a train wreck you couldn't look away from. It's a popcorn movie. Yeah, it was, it was, I couldn't stop watching it. I didn't fast forward it because there were points in it that my jaw was dropped going, oh my God. What are we doing? Yeah, we put this on TV. And ask people to pay money for it. Yeah. So let's talk about LOD here, because after this, they're going to take a hiatus for a little while. Had that hiatus been planned before Raw, where they dropped the belts to Road Dog, or did it come on the heels of them dropping the belts, maybe not being happy about it, not winning them back here? It is sort of a dud match, mismatch of styles, whatever you want to call it, but it doesn't feel as if they would have been happy with their position, and or the company may not have been happy with their performance. They weren't happy with their position, but it was... Again, from my recollection, it was that was a planned hiatus, and that was reasons switching the titles around and everything. Let them go away, freshen up, and have them return. But it was 
yeah, this was painful. Did you remember Elodie giving you guys any shit about taking the belts off of them? No, wrong, no. I, man, I, I don't ever remember LOD giving us shit over anything. And yes, they had their issues, and yes, they, they would fight for things, and they would speak up. But Joe and Mike, all my dealings with them, they were always professional, and I don't have a problem with some guy saying, hey, well, I don't think this is the right thing. Great, you're entitled to your opinion. Let's talk about it. But those guys there, I'm not going to drop title. Fuck this shit. I'm going to go out there and stink the joint out. I think the joint got stuck out because their styles clashed, and I don't think either one, either one of those teams, all four of them, I don't think their heart was in it. A 49-year-old Sergeant Slaughter. Really? He was that young then? I know. He looks older. Um, Meltzer would say he's at least 40 pounds overweight, and he should not be going 17 minutes and 39 seconds with Hunter Hearst Helmsley. But that's what's going to happen in a boot camp match. Surprise, surprise. Uh, Hunter gets the win here. Meltzer would say it's excruciatingly long and a candidate for the worst match of the year, and that nobody really took Slaughter seriously just because of his physical condition. He gets negative two stars, worse than a dud, and, uh, well, it's not good. But you know what? what's coming here? It's a pedigree on the chair. That's the finish, because we all know if Hunter's winning, we're just going to pedigree most. So you would have put Sarge over? Then. No, I don't think I would have looked at this. I mean, you got a really talented... In ring performer and hard. Now, hang on now, but the idea, the match, booking the match, is good. Sarge was the seventeen Sarge was minutes. Good. Oh no, that's fucking the drizzling shits. <laughs> no, no, no. Seven minutes may have been too long, including exclusive <laughs> and aftermath. Okay, <laughs> that would have been too long. This should have been a destruction of Sarge. Absolutely, three this minutes. Should have been smash him. Beat the fuck out of him, leave him laying, and, and get it out. looks like it's obvious you're going to pin him, pull him up by the hair, yeah. or whatever, and then beat him a little yeah, more. Yeah, it, it was. But in Hunter's mind, it was let's. Sarge is limited, and let's give him the Madison Square Garden, Pat Patterson, Sergeant Slaughter match. Can't do it. Well, fuck no, because that match happened 20 years earlier. Right. Sarge was in his prime. Pat was in his fucking prime. Two of the best workers in the business at the time in Madison Square Garden with one of the hottest fucking issues ever. Let's talk about how crazy this is, too. You know, I know everybody knows what I'm about to say. Time is a funny thing. But we're watching this match this week. Sarge is 49. Or saying how old he looks. Hunter's older than that now. It's totally yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. They didn't look like Sarge did at forty nine. No, and I we know why. Like I said, this match, this match should have been five minutes. King Cancun, boom, get the fuck out of there and get some heat on Hunter. But Hunter, out of respect for Sarge, wanted to have a match. I was like, well, we can do this, and and we can really make it because it's a boot camp match. We can have some gimmicks and different things that people would believe if Sarge gets the upper hand. They'll believe it. None of it was, it just wasn't convincing. It wasn't good. And, um, well, I mean, it is, it is an interesting cat. It hurt. For, it, yeah, it did. 
it's an interesting end of the year for Hunter. You know, he starts the year as the Intercontinental Champion. He wins the King of the Ring tournament. Um, he gets a big win over a legend here on pay-per-view. I mean, he's making some pretty big strides towards what 1998 is going to be, where it really is his breakout year. Uh, let's talk about somebody who didn't necessarily need to break out, and that's The Undertaker. Uh, he's working with Jeff Jarrett here. They only get six minutes and 56 seconds. Of course, uh, Kane's going to be involved here. Uh, Meltzer would say they basically did nothing except Jarrett clipping Taker and working the knee, all of which got no heat. Kane showed up with Uncle Paul, and Jarrett told Kane to destroy Taker. So Kane joke slammed or choke slammed Jarrett, which enabled Jarrett to win by DQ. Um, he's slapping the Undertaker. Undertaker is not handing him back. You know they're really trying to get over this brother storyline. We know the payoff is coming at WrestleMania. There's going to be a big moment at the next Royal Rumble next month as well. Um, <laughs> Meltzer, he has his favorites at times. He says, after Undertaker left, Jarrett got to strut in the ring. If you look up the phrase, not getting over in your dictionary, they'll have a photo of Jarrett in that Mayan Indian outfit next to the phrase, dud. What did you think of the match, and what did you think of... And here's the deal, although I'm critical of, of what Dave writes about folks at certain times, Jeff's definitely not over right here. No, Jeff wasn't over at all. And this was, you know, Russo fighting to put him in a prominent spot because he was his buddy and thought that Jeff Jarrett coming from WCW yeah. that was going to be a big deal. I should mention that. This is really his first match. He meant less returning, than nothing. Returning back yeah. from WCW. And he did have a decent run in WCW. He was involved in some horseman storylines and stuff. I mean, he was a, a top guy, but meant less than nothing. And you put him in a match with The Undertaker. Why, why would you do that? Um, well, because first of all, it was supposed to be a, it, it was never designed to be a match. Right. It was designed to continue the Undertaker Kane story. And, you know, one thing strikes me, and, and I didn't even put this in my notes, but is as we sit here and we talk about this show, this is basically just a television show. And 100% is. Yeah. This is a, this is a television show that was, a, that <laughs> happened to be on pay per view. And, because so much of it was designed for next, the next, the next step. Thing. Let's get, let's get to this isn't going. a destination. Yeah, too much of it was practically the whole damn show was to get somewhere else. Um, but with everything with Brett and just not knowing on some other things, you really had no choice. Well, let's talk about um, what else you could have done with Jeff. Of course, we've covered Jarrett. In the archives, we'll announce something to Wrestle.com. It's probably number 12 for me to say that today. Um, why wouldn't you just reestablish him, get him an easy win over somebody, and then find a way to do something different with the Undertaker Kane storyline? Why did? Why was this the solution? This way to kill two stones with one bird. I, I like that. I've never heard that before. You know who, you know who said that? Who? Dominic Danucci. Really? Yeah, he would always fuck up that person. Ah, you killed two stones with one bird. Yeah. This story was told to me by Pat Patterson, which is why I do it in the Pat Patterson accent. Um, what's your Pat Patterson impression? Out of pace. Um, speaking of birds, Steve Austin 
pins the rock here. Five minutes and 32 seconds to retain the Intercontinental title. He comes out to the ring in his truck and gets the loudest reaction of anyone on the show. Uh, no surprise there. He gives a guy a stunner on the roof of the truck. Um, D'Lo Brown winds up breaking the uh, windshield. Super heat here. Two and a quarter stars is what it gets. Uh, this is really, really fun. You know, you're having to sort of cover up some of his SummerSlam injuries. You got a lot of hijinks. You got a lot of brawling. But involving the truck, stunner on the truck, going into the windshield, lots of interference. It's a short match, but high action and a clean win for Stone Cold over The Rock, one of their early matches on pay-per-view. What did you think? A lot of gaga, and I thought it was, again, it was all about, you know, Steve and when that damn glass breaks and he comes out, it was all about the excitement. I enjoyed the hell out of it. It just reminded me of some of the crazy shit that we did in Austin getting over and that whole early electricity of Steve. He was the guy that wasn't supposed to get over, and he was on fire here. Rock was, <laughs> what, a year and a half, two years in the business? No, no, yeah, he's 13 months in. Yeah, and he's on fire. And it was, you know, the, the, the promos leading up to this and the beeper. That, you know, kids Such good stuff. Yeah, 316 and Rock and the whole cell on that. Um, start of a beautiful story for a long time. What's interesting, too, is you can tell that Austin's hurt. He never even takes his vest off. He wrestles the whole match with his vest on. Like, I'm not here for long. Man. I ain't got to take it off till I'm done. Don't want to get beer on it. Now, he didn't even drink beer, I don't think. Ken Shamrock's at our main event. Uh, I have campaigned for this for a long time. Why didn't he push Shamrock more? Why didn't he get more of a main event push? Well, <laughs> he got it here against Shawn Michaels. They go 18 minutes and 29 seconds, but it's a schmoz finish, a DQ. It gets three stars in the Observer. Of course, the big spot, and you know what's coming. Owen Hart is going to run in and knock Shawn Michaels um, off the apron. He goes through the Spanish announce table. Owen jumps on him, pounding away, ripping at the nose, apparently to draw blood give the illusion that the punches were real before disappearing into the crowd. That's directly from the Observer. And you and I talked about this earlier today for the first time, and we almost never do this, but since we have been stuck with each other for a damn week now, we've had a lot of free time to just say, hey man, what about this? What about that? You blew my mind with something that Owen Hart did in this match that I don't think anybody's ever talked about before. Well, again, this this is where you're you know, having a little bit of knowledge is, is dangerous for some people. Where Dave Meltzer thinks he knows what he's talking about. Where, first of all, the punches Owen was throwing were live rounds. And they were connecting, and Owen beat the shit out of Sean. The blood was from Owen, and the story was Owen was trying to rip out his eyes. And then Owen was trying to get in and, and dig his eyes out. Owen, at this time, we had had a, uh, you know, no blood. No blood on TV. Owen Hart, again, man, them Hart boys, 
were so ahead of their time and, and so inventive in a lot of the things they did had cut his fingers. He bladed his fingers, cut his fingers, so that his fingers were bleeding when he got out there. So that when he grabbed Sean's face, that was blood. You painted it as, oh my God, he's he's clawing at Sean's face. You think it's Sean's blood. That's what Owen was trying to get to. But he had actually bladed his fingers so that when he got on to Sean, that the blood would show up. And he, the idea was he was trying to get into his eyes. But those, that was one of the things on my notes. Those punches were live rounds. And that was Owen, I mean, busting his ass to make you believe this was real. And, it, and it's funny that the smart guy that knows everything thinks they're weak punches. Um, you know what's funny to me is, well, he didn't say they were weak punches. But I've never even heard of somebody blading their fingers before. I, I've seen guys blade their arms. You know, we know everybody, you know, to do with the forehead, but the uh, the idea of blading your fingers blew my mind, and, and we've been around wrestlers all day and day, and a couple of guys were talking about this, and one said, oh, I did it, and I was blown away that this is not nearly as uncommon as I thought, and that person said it was a mistake, and he shouldn't have done it. Yeah. How common was... Not. It's not very common at all. And and also when you you talk about it, he he played his fingertip. I mean, his, his you know where his fingerprints are, and now you've got to go through the next few days of cuts on all your fingers for a moment in a spot that hopefully it's going to read. And it didn't read nearly the way Owen wanted it to read. Owen was really disappointed. Owen was pissed off. He 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 was very disappointed that it didn't show up the way he envisioned it. Then he went to this trouble, yeah, and it, not necessarily pain, but hassle of having because obviously that you're going to be in a prime spot for an infection if you have a cut on the thing that you literally touch everything with. Um, what Vince think of blading your fingers? Vince didn't know about it till afterwards. Why would um, why would he not just have a, uh, Sean do it the traditional way? Because we weren't getting Vince, we weren't getting color at that time. So bad blood, Sean Michaels, two months prior, right. bleeds fucking. We already had it. God damn it, we've had too much of it. Don't want any blood. No. So two months later, what you just did that got over like Rover. Can't do that anymore. Nope. So now we've got to hot it and cut our fingers instead. Yeah, but Vince didn't know he was doing that. That's what that was Owen's idea. So when he comes to the back, and he knew there was an edict, hey, no blading. And Sean, well, I it, it. It, it wasn't. It wasn't Sean blading. There wasn't a lot of blood, and, and that's what Owen was trying to. But if the perception was this blood is on Sean, clearly he was going for this is Sean's blood. Did Owen was? You're right. Vince wasn't. That's and question. that was a little touch that Owen added in there, and, and it just, you know. But what um, did Vince say to Sean? Because he had to think Sean Blader. No. No, and I he, mean, because it was just a little bit on his face. It wasn't, it was just a little bit of blood. So how does Vince find out that it was Owen blading his fingers? I'm trying to get a story. Well, Owen came back and told me. I mean, Owen, I, I was like, <laughs> I came back, and Owen is, is standing, you know, like staring at his fingers. He goes, he said, how was that? And I said, no, nah, man, it, it was great. Because did the blood show up? I said, well, Sean had a, li- a little blood. He goes, he says, yeah. He goes, I, I, <laughs> I cut my fingers so there would be blood on Sean. 
because we can't get juice. And so, um, how fucking silly is that? That the rule is you can't get juice. Cut so I'm fingers. still gonna do it. I'm just gonna cut a different part yeah. than what you think I can't cut. Yeah. But he, and he also didn't tell anybody he was doing it. But at this time. point, Vince ain't saying shit to Owen, right? No, and and also wasn't it wasn't something that oh my god it was a lot. It of wasn't blood, as big so, and green. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Let's talk about um, yeah this segment. Do you think if this segment, let's say there is blood pouring out of his fingers, let's say it's a bloody mess, and Sean recognizes that there's a bunch of blood, really goes over the top with the selling. JR's over the top. It's a big moment. Does it change anything, or is it still going to be Undertaker? Oh, it still would have been Undertaker at that point. Would it have changed anything for February? I don't know. I really don't know, and and I can't. Yeah, I can't say the I segment. can't put my finger on it. Did the segment fall flat in Vince's eyes? No. I mean, he he thought he saw a new Owen Hart. He thought he saw this really aggressive Owen Hart. Saw a different Owen Hart. Um, but not enough to make. But not enough to paper pull paper. that trigger. No. This is the only time we would see Ken Shamrock main event, and right after this, he's going to start training MMA again. I mean, literally the next day. Did you guys, I mean, what did you think of his performance in the match? What did Vince think of his performance? I thought that Kenny had a great performance. I thought the match was really, really good. It, it spotlighted Shamrock and what he did well. However, Ken's heart was in MMA. Ken wanted to go back to MMA. So you're not going to invest your money in a guy that doesn't want to commit 100% to it and still had his heart in that MMA world. Um, that's just business. So let's get let's get this match out of him and still kind of keep him good with the DQ. Don't beat him. And let him go pursue his MMA career. So he's announced as you know he's going to fight on the December 21st pay-per-view and he's going to fly to Dallas to start this intense training regimen. I don't think it ever actually wound up happening. What fell apart in Shamrocks? Uh, I think the fight fell apart, but Ken, I'll never forget, man. Ken, his training for MMA was for three weeks, two or three weeks. I think it was three weeks. He would go into training camp and just have the living shit kicked out of him. Like get beat up for three weeks. Have someone just kick the living shit out of him in his training. Train all day and have someone just beat the shit out of him. So he was, his body would then get conditioned to have the shit beat Toughen up. up. Yeah. It's crazy. I, I I just thought that was the craziest thing I'd ever heard. But he, when Shamrock said it, it made sense. I'm not going to argue with the guy. <laughs> no, especially when he's crazy. Yeah. The next night, you guys um, continue the McMahon uh, Austin's storyline. Austin's going to have a situation with the Intercontinental title. We got things moving in the right direction, but it's not enough. Uh, Nitro does a 4.3. You guys do a 3.0. Talk to me a little bit about you know, what your takeaway of this pay-per-view was. You know, you, you watched it this this week for the first time in over 20 years. A lot of people would argue, and we got a lot of questions about this, and I'm going to have you answer some of them this week on Patreon. 
Uh, we've got a lot of fun stuff there if you haven't checked it out. Patreon.com slash something to wrestle. There you go. You can get in for just nine bucks. Lots of bonus content. Lots of behind the scenes. Uh, you guys can pick a topic and Bruce and I will cover it. Very recently, we talked about Ronda Rousey and Charlotte Flair. Um, you never know what you guys are going to want us to watch, but we'd be happy to do it. Chat me up, though. What's your takeaway all these years later, the first time you watched it? Uh, because most people, I shouldn't say most people, a lot of people say this show is the beginning of the Attitude Era. And I know you say, no, it's showing stuff in his shorts, but I'm saying a show, like a full show where and i think a lot of that is because of what you said a minute ago man this is really just a tv show it's all building to the next thing everybody's got something going on and it's just building to the next thing what was i mean what do you rate the pay-per-view is it historically important is it relevant or are we just celebrating it because it's an anniversary i think we're celebrating it because it's because it's an anniversary i think there is merit to the beginning of the attitude era but watching it 20 years later, it was a glorified television show. It was a three-hour TV show. Um, everything was everything was done to further something. There was no blow-off. The only, the only thing that was a finale was Taka and Christopher because you crowned a new champion. Everything else... Maybe a little bit of the Sergeant Slaughter, Hunter Herselmsley, but... I'm with you on really the the big finale is the yeah. fucking taco match. Yeah, I mean it's just you know, and that's that's opener. So from you know watching it back, I think it was a a three hour TV. Hey, it would be a three hour RAW now, right? So that that's just kind of kind of what it felt like after the fact. Well, sometimes those three hour RAWs were. Well, they're no gift. But the best gift this holiday season is Omaha Steaks. If you haven't already, what are you waiting for? Go to omahasteaks.com and enter that promo code WRESTLE in the search bar. You're going to get 74% off of this tremendous Omaha Steaks family gift package. It's less than 50 bucks. Order today and you'll get hand-cut sirloin steaks, premium pork chops, kielbasa sausages, burgers, and so much more. One more time, omahasteaks.com. Type wrestle in the search bar and then add the family gift package to your cart. Bruce, I had fun doing this. This was a little different, man. Yeah, Folks, different. we're in Birmingham, England right now. We're in Conrad's room. He's sitting on the bed. I'm sitting over here. It's 1.46 in the morning. London time. London time. Yeah, and, and that's six hours different. ahead of where we normally are. But right now, you and I are so adjusted to this. That it feels every bit of 1.46 in the morning. It feels much later, and, and I've had about an hour and a half of sleep in the last three days, and you about the same. And, uh, shit, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go, too, and, um, sorry I had a tough week this week, buddy. You know what? We'll get through it, man. Thank you. Uh, go ahead and say a prayer for the Pritchard family. Uh, they've had a tough week this week. You can use uh, all the extra love and prayers you can send their way. And we hope that you guys will come back our way next week right here on Something to Wrestle. We've got some more fun stuff coming your way. A whole list of shows that we've laid out into the first part of the year. Uh, and we're going to have some polls because we've got a ton 
of Royal Rumbles coming your way. We're going to let you guys pick 88, 93, 98, 03, 08. There's so much stuff that we can uh, let you guys have a spin. Uh, We're going back to the polls for some stuff. That's nice. Yeah, absolutely. We let you decide. And you can uh, you can have a little more influence over patreon.com forward slash something to wrestle. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey Hey It's Conrad. All of our social media and behind the scenes is at Pritchard Show. Whether you're looking for us on Twitter or you're looking for us on Instagram. And of course Facebook. You can always check out at Facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. Pick yourself up a shirt over at BrucePritchard.com or lots of other fun little swag at BoxOfGimmicks.com. We're out of time. See you next week right here on Something to Wrestle with Shuck. Bruce Pritchard. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.